0: to dive down that rabbit hole but force plates do a pretty good job with that Mm -hmm. if it's specific exercises or whatever it may be and if i can get them to buy in to just doing two sets of everything instead of four just move and feel really good then let's do that instead if it's to the point where uh, they're just not in the, the mood, the zone, just the frame of mind to train. Hey, go see other Matt. That's our athletic trainer's name with the swim team. Hey, go <laughs> hey, see Tyler. other Matt really quick, you know, talk to him and then we'll all we'll all find a plan. I'm just asking you to give me your best. And whether it's a little bit more of a warm up, whether it's just like trying to flip the switch in your mind, whatever it may be, how do we just make today as awesome as possible? So I think not setting them up for failure, like mm-hmm. everybody has to be perfect and I'd be more mm-hmm. excited you only having great days when you update it i think it, it's a perfect combination of it's basically as specific as we can get right it's part of training as well because you know testing is training and training is testing so i think it's very specific i think it lets you still train i think it's a kpi so a key performance indicator So of course that spits out what, 30,000 metrics there. I'm obviously exaggerating, but you know, 300 or something kind of like that coming up with the holidays. You know, I tell my athletes jump height. So similar to jumping on a jump mat, like it clicks for them. They know if it was higher or lower, Mm. it's engaging. They try to beat it. And then how I can track progress, right? Because it's it's performance. It's performance, it's pretty relevant. But like Mm. when I pull an athlete out just to do one jump, That's like 15 seconds out of a workout. I'm going to do a sprint anyways. I might as well time
1: it. Just before the podcast gets started, I want to say a big thank you to everyone who watches it and supports me on the daily. If you could leave a rating on the podcast, that would help me land people that I would love to talk to. So if you're enjoying the podcast and you like what I'm doing here, make sure to rate it. Yeah, thank you. Hello and welcome back to PA Up. Today we have Matt. Hi Matt, how are you doing?
0: Good man, how are you?
1: I'm good. Nice to have you on and I've sort of been stalking your page for a little bit and honestly like the some of the posts you post about the speed and the rotational and the thing that fascinated me the most is the rotator cuff exercise that you've got posted up. Obviously you've got baseball as one of your sports so for me that's quite an interesting topic because I've Dislocate and had surgery on mine, so it's quite impressive to see how far that came along. Yeah, it wasn't fun. Rugby, it's rugby for you. Um, so if you just give us a little introduction of who you are and what you do.
0: Sweet. So my name is Matt. Obviously, I'm an assistant director of Olympic sports performance at Northwestern University here in the states. So, uh, good evening over there. Good morning over here. <laughs> um, working with baseball and swim. I'm. Uh, About half a year in, I spent three years at a private facility in the same area, really where I kind of honed in and learned all about kind of speed training as of the facility TC Boost Sports Performance. That's kind of our competitive edge and what we do super, super well is linear speed and sprinting. Before that, I got my master's at Texas Christian uh, University, doing some sports science there for a few teams, got my thesis published, kind of where I kind of fell in love with the applied side of it you know my at the beginning of my thesis I was just sitting and reading research studies and I was like I was like this sucks I hate it like do I leave what do I do and then the the next day my boss was like hey you played college baseball right I was like yeah he's like do you want to work with the baseball team here and I was like what and then the next morning I'm like in the weight room collecting data and I was like oh this is this is it this is it so um have some planning play, playing experience um, graduate assistant experience masters coaching 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 all the above and Mm -hmm. kind of looking forward you know just high level coaching with athletes on the floor collecting data doing speed helping them kind of take control of their sports story you know what they want to get out of sports what a cool opportunity i have to help them make that reality yeah
1: in terms of your thesis what was that on
0: so it was load monitoring in women's college beach volleyball so beach volleyball Mm -hmm. is not that um studied of a sports you know people just think of it once every four years kind of in the olympics so um that was a team that i just knew um their strength coach was a graduate assistant so i classed with her and then that was kind of my in and et cetera et cetera so basically just running correlations between the heart rate load the distance covered on the gps and then their srpe load if mm-hmm. your listeners are familiar with srpe um, so basically that's a, a validation study because you have heart rate which is objective but it's also um relative to them so that's like the Mm. gold standard right internal load and then you just compare that to a subjective sorry yeah a subjective internal which is their srpe what they feel about practice and then um external load which is distance covered um objective so you kind of put that all together and uh shocker they were all correlated so you can use distance covered an SRPE load in Women's College Beach Volleyball.
1: Yeah. And how did that transfer over to sort of what you do now?
0: Yeah. So although, so I, I consulted for the team a few years after, um, remotely, kind of after COVID and quarantine and all that stuff. Um, but what, and we'll, we'll probably get to this later. I love uh, foreshadowing uh, stuff on the <laughs> podcast. Um, just Sneak like peeks. going through that, that extreme because everything's on a continuum, right? Mm -hmm. There's the extreme of like, getting a thesis published, it's got to be perfect, you have to do the IRB, all these drafts and research studies and these things in a lab, but that's so far away from real life, right? So I think just taking away like, what are the the principles? What are the themes? What are the connections? Mm -hmm. How do I make my real life job, a little bit more data, like a little bit more um, precise and professional and reliable? kind of like meeting everything in the middle. Um, so Mm. the direct content, not that much, but I think just like having that, that lens of like, oh, I can, I can like, just make sure I do this right. So the data is a little bit better and then X, Y, Z and kind of, um, turns into real life. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but I think this is the biggest difference between sort of research and real life coaching. Is like in a lab, everything's controlled. Everything's taken. Like you're controlling the air temperature, you're controlling the heat, you control everything to do with the resort. The, the results you essentially want to have. But in real life coaching, you'll know yourself. One day you you plan everything goes perfectly. The next day, same session, same everything, same athletes, but it could go the complete opposite way. And I think, or you have
0: this this huge master plan. And normally the lifts have been at 4 p.m. And then it changes the next day to 6 a.m. And it's just like, can I really trust, you know, their sprint jump explosive data now that it's like 10 hours prior?
1: Mm-hmm. It, 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 there's too many variables within sort mm-hmm. of the real life coaching that kind of seems that research, sometimes you kind of have to look for the outliers and what else can be sort of included in there. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. You do also... Yeah, you do also have that um, applying scientific methods to sport. Can you give us a little rundown on the webinar you did and sort of how you're wanting to progress that?
0: Yeah, so it's it's basically just, as I was saying earlier, kind of pre, uh, pre-podcast pre combos. I also love dropping <laughs> that in there. Um, where it's just like concepts and ideas that I've been ranting about on my own and in, po- in my own podcast and on phone calls for a few years now. It's basically just applying science to sport right so the scientific mm. method and that's what sport science is i'm just phrasing it differently so if we think about sports well that's increasing player availability reducing the risk of injury and increasing performance right mm. i think we can all agree that those are the two main goals of training and then there's like coaching and building buy-in and relationships but like just the training training part right so how do we get them healthier make them better and then sports science. So science, the scientific method, basically just, you have a question, you collect your data, and then you figure out what it means. So how do you apply that process, right? Or if you think about like a research study, you have your introduction. So that's your question, your logic, your rationale, your intuition that, that makes you feel like this is important. Or if I do this little experiment, it'll go this way. Then you have your methods. You have to make sure you know what you're doing, You have to control for different variables, like time of day, if you can, or just be conscious of those things. You collect your data, you analyze the data, and then you figure out what it means, right? That's like the five main pieces Mm. of a research study. So not that it's necessarily all written out, but I have a few articles that I've written where I've written it like a research study, right? Those kind of five main pieces. How do you just kind of go through that, that checklist and process in your head to then answer your questions to then help you train your athletes better to make them actually better and then keep them healthy
1: Mm -hmm. um what was the process that sort of made you realize that this was something that needed answered
0: oh i'm just a nerd i just love data (laughs) and uh and like there's there's just like at at a tcu doing beach volleyball i was like literally in the sand holding an iPad, like watching their heart rates, sharing with the coaches and like, and like cheering on the team and stuff. And I was like, this is so cool, you know? And then on the Mm. flip side, when I was just like sitting and highlighting research studies in a cold dungeon basement lab, I was like, ah, this is not it. And then I have like, just actually coaching and like living my best life and like doing my job. And like, I'm more towards the applied side, but again, there's that Mm. truth, there's that objectivity, there's that data, like give me a set of headphones and an energy drink excel and a bunch of data that i have to figure out and like i'm a happy camper so it's like there's all these different things that i find engaging and fascinating Mm. so i'm just pretty fortunate that i found a good combination of like what i enjoy what makes my brain tick you know like i can think in black and white i always gravitated towards towards math and science in school but you know sports has played a huge role in my life as an athlete but also now Mm -hmm. as a coach so um just grateful that i get to kind of put it all together
1: Yeah. So how was, what's the benefits that you've seen applying these scientific methods into your own coaching?
0: Yeah, so I think we all we all do it. Right? I think, and and this was a a slide in my PowerPoint, where you're a scientist, whether you like it or not, you know, I I know some people that Oh, sports science, that's too fancy, or whatever it may be. And admittedly, when I call things, quote, unquote, sports science, Not that it feels fake. It just feels a little fancy, to be honest. It's like we all Mm -hmm. have these intuitions, right? If we just want to call that a hypothesis. Oh, I'd like to see how this plays out. Or I'll do this variation for this phase or whatever it may be. And then you get these like anecdotes or just like little stories that you can reference about, oh, this turned out how I wanted or how I didn't. Mm -hmm. And then that'll help me either do this more or just ignore that completely because I learned that like that's, that's not a viable option now. And that's literally science. You just didn't really do Mm -hmm. it formally or quantify anything necessarily, but we all have those things. Oh, this one athlete responded really well to this, or this one athlete did X, Y, Z, or when I changed this one variable, like they jumped way, way higher. Like that's literally science. You're just like doing it in the moment instead of like Mm a more thought out kind of process. Um, so people are scientists, whether they like it or not and care to admit it. Um, but also, um you know as i was giving my presentation i was like i'm not here to change what you do 180 degrees like change all your philosophies and make you start from square one and rip up all your programs like you're 90% of the way there like odds mm. are if you do this for a living you're pretty good at what you do and you can like get athletes better and keep them healthy right but you know what's that last 10% that we can kind of dial in and if i just phrase that in a different way of if you make 10 decisions a day when you coach, or if you have to program 10 different things, can we just make one of those things a little bit better, right? That's that Mm. last 10%. So I'm just trying to help you make one better decision a day per 10 decisions with this kind of mindset and with a little bit of data and a little bit of kind of rhyme and reason, even though you've been doing this this whole time. So there's a phrase like anecdata, right? So instead of anecdote, like anecdata, like anecdata counts. There's so many things that I have where it's like, oh, I just decided to do that in my own workout. Oh, I liked how it felt or I didn't mm. or that's why I do this. Or, oh, man, these few athletes, like I remember they really like this, this exercise clicked for them or whatever it may be. Or it can be as formal as like running an experiment. You know, our athletes faster when they race and et cetera, et cetera. So, um, again, some of those things I referenced was more formal. Some were more casual, but we all do it. I'm just like putting some words to it.
1: Yeah. I I'll, I'll also on to a point that you just made is like trying to get that one percent better every single time. Um, there's this great book, it's called Peak Performance, and they sort of break down how the the British cycling team went from losing to like winning all the time. And that was just based on this concept of one percent better every single day. And that just meant that for one of their training sessions, they All they did was wash their hands every time they went to the bathroom, wash their hands every time they did something. But that meant that that decreased the risk of them getting ill. Mm -hmm. So that, again, brings you back to the availability. How available Mm -hmm. can we make these athletes by making them one percent better? Mm -hmm. I think it's a really interesting point that all you're trying to do is just make that one task better, but that can save you so much more time in the long run or cause that metric to be better on the long run mm. what's one metric that you apply to every single athlete and every sport that you think is a fundamental one
0: uh so at my old job it was just timed sprints i mm. think the it, it's a perfect combination of it's basically as specific as we can get right it's part of training as well because you know testing is training and training is testing and you know, you can't, you can't dilute your session so much that it turns into half of a training session just Uh because you had to collect data. So it's like, what in your session were you going to do anyways? And then can you quantify that? It's like, we're all going to sprint. So I can just set up lasers and I get data anyways, as opposed to, I have to do this data, I'll change the workout and then kind of work backwards like that. So I think it's very specific. I think it lets you still train. I think it's a KPI, so a key performance indicator, mm. but it also works well for readiness. You know, I, I probably talk too much about Charlie Francis's 95%, but that's been huge for us kind of using that as a threshold of like, are we putting in good reps? You know, when when is today maybe not the best day or whatever it may be? Um, so I think that there's just a, a lot of connections and it's simple yeah. and specific and engaging. And um, you know, that's just like one number and it's seconds, right? Everyone knows Mm. what a second is. And then at my current job, we jump on force plates every day. So of course that spits out what 30,000 metrics or I'm obviously exaggerating, but you know, 300 or something kind of like that. Um, so that's nice to get a way more in depth kind of daily number. And then you can kind of dive into what you want to. So Mm. that's kind of my, my task as we have a break here coming up with the holidays. Um, you know, I tell my athletes jump height. So similar to jumping on a jump mat, like it clicks for them. They know if it was higher or lower, mm. it's engaging. They try to beat it. And then I'm going to try to figure out, you know, one eccentric number, one concentric, one kind of ratio, kind of putting it all together. And then um, how I can track progress, right? Because it's it's performance. It's performance. It's pretty relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's so many ways that you can get into it with individualization and stuff like that. So um, yeah, I think, uh, those two things do a pretty good job.
1: Yeah. Do you test for sort of athlete availability for that day on the jump mods or was it that you're trying to figure out with the jump? Mat? Uh,
0: the, with the, the force plates, it's kind of just a, a daily kind of check-in, um, to track progress over time. Um, as well as like <laughs> jump height is a little bit more inconsistent than sprint times i found in my experience so, and ninety two and a half percent is a little bit similar of a number to ninety five for sprinting. Mm. Um, but you know, these athletes train so hard at the college level, like especially my swimmers, you know they're in a pool like was sixteen hours a week, and they always lift after practice, and you're kind of always supposed to feel like garbage. you know this is mm-hmm. my like not swimmer interpretation of swimming, where you feel like garbage the whole year until you decide to not when you taper right and of course i'm just like making that way way too simple but you swim a lot the whole year it's Mm -hmm. really really hard and then like a few times a year you take the volume down and you feel really good so i think there's definitely context right um but i think just to have that that data also for a rainy day isn't a bad thing either and again it's not to collect data just to collect data but like Mm. when i pull an athlete out just to do one jump that's like 15 seconds out of a workout right I'm, I'm gonna do a sprint anyways, I might as well time it. So there's, there's been some, some kind of articles or research studies, quote, unquote, that I have just used data that I've had in the past when an idea comes up. And Mm. then there's been like little research studies I've done intentionally kind of in the moment. So I think part of it is just good data for a rainy day, you know, whether they get a little bit hurt, and we have to check back, like, what is their normal, right? Mm. Or I made a change to a program and it's going to take me kind of 12 weeks to see if, if it really made a change. Right. But to have that consistent in depth um, kind of data point uh, readiness kind of not that it's, it's a, it's a good concept, but I feel like in real life, it's not as, it makes it a little bit more sense in theory. Yeah. As I've, I've kind of, I've kind of come to, to know.
1: Yeah. I used to do some, I, I did an internship with a team and every day before a session they would run through these specific tests i think it was like a sit and reach it was some type of jumping movement and just different metrics to go off of when assessing how ready they are for the session but like that session would take half hour for each athlete and then they would have to go into the gym and then lift or they would have to go out into the field and play so i do think that in theory, it's a really good metric to assess where the athlete is for that day. But a fist bump, as I figured out through doing these podcasts, can work just as well.
0: Yeah, I I do a one out of ten. How are you feeling today? Hmm. You know, with a fist bump, and that works pretty well. You know, yeah. and and maybe these numbers don't line up as much. But like as a pitcher, as I pitched in college, you know, you have your A stuff. You know, like all of your pitches working really, really well then your B stuff and your C stuff, right? If that makes sense to you and the listener. Well, <clears throat> you're only going to have your A stuff like a third of the time. You're only going to have your B stuff like a third of the time. And then a third of the time, like you're probably not going to feel that good. Mm. So if you never pitched when you had your C stuff, sorry, coach, I just I'm not feeling it today, right? If If we assume just for the sake of this example, that like athletes feel really good a third of the days, they feel kind of, average and then they feel kind of like garbage at the end of the day is you can't abandon one third of your training year right Mm -hmm. you know how much more significant is training three days a week versus two like two is way way more than one and three is way more than two you know so it's like sometimes you you just have to train and -hmm. maybe it's valuable to learn how to how to work through a c day right because if you wake up on game day it doesn't really matter how you feel you kind of just got to do it and make it happen um, 100%. Yeah. So I think readiness is valuable. And of course, like when it's a big, big red flag. Right. Um, but as always, you know, there's gray in this, you know, black and white math and science field. Um, so learning when the readiness means a little bit more and when you kind of just have to to fight through it, but it's good to know for sure to check mm-hmm. in, to maybe tweak a few, few things. Um, not to dive down that rabbit hole, but force plates do a pretty good job with that.
1: Yeah. With, If you're having like a a bad day with it, well, an athlete's having a bad day. What are some of the things that you maybe change up or implement to still get them through that session?
0: For sure. So, um, I would say that there's nothing we have to do, right? Mm -hmm. If it's specific exercises or whatever it may be, and if I can get them to buy in to just doing two sets of everything instead of four, just move and feel really good, then let's do that instead. Right if it's to the point where you know they're just not in the the mood the zone just the frame of mind to train you know i'm fortunate to work in a high performance team where i have an athletic trainer downstairs right mm. so hey go see other matt that's our athletic trainer's name with the swim team hey, <laughs> hey go so. see other matt really quick you know talk to him and then we'll all we'll all find a plan that mm. works right so or it's just talking to them and be like hey You know, like I've used this example. I said this on my first day when I was setting my my expectations in the weight room, where it's like, you're not gonna feel amazing all the time. I'm just asking you to give me your best. Right? And if we go back to that ABC example, well, the best athletes and the ones that have the best, you know, pitching seasons, we'll just use that, they find a way when it's their C day to somehow make it B. Mm. And whenever they have their B stuff, they somehow find a way. To make it A and whether it's a little bit more of a warm-up, whether it's just like trying to flip the switch in your mind, whatever it may be, how do we just make today as awesome as possible? So I think not setting them up for failure, but like mm-hmm. every day has to be perfect and it it'll be amazing and you'll you'll PR on everything. It's like, no, you're gonna feel like like garbage sometimes. Just give me your best. I I if 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 you give me your best, if you somehow can make a C into a B, like that's all I can ask for, and I'd be really? more excited. Then you only having great days when you have A days.
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. I think that's something I read this tweet once, and it was like it was on jumping and how to build up that jump performance for basketball athletes. And the guy said, "Jump and reach," as opposed mm-hmm. to just jump. So mm-hmm. when you reach as well, that's that extra push or that C to B or B to A mm-hmm. that you can potentially give out someone else exactly um in terms of your programming obviously you've got swimming and you've got um baseball what are the key differences between your program programming for both
0: Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of similarities and i think you know swimming is is the baseball was like the the not main team but like that was a team as part of this role that was like already set and then of the the few teams that I could get as my other team, I really wanted swimming because I feel like there's a lot of connections with kind of my speed and sprinting and uh, mm-hmm. track kind of background. Um, there's a lot of similarities in, in the shoulder work, the hip care. Um, there's actually a lot more rotation in swimming than you think, kind of yep. the contralateral um, kind of cross crawl pattern. Um, it's, it's interesting. Like my swimmers jump better on the force plates, kind of hands on hips, two feet but my baseball players jump really well, like one step kind of approach jump over a hurdle, right? So I think like, they're both really good just in different contexts. You know, like I don't do full straight up speed sessions with the swim team, but yeah, when we do our dry land, like we do like a three by 10 kind of sprint. Um, If you're familiar with the 10 by 10 kind of Derek Hansen, Mm -hmm. basically sprint 10 yards, you have 10 yards to slow down, turn around, sprint 10 yards slow down for 10 like I have them do that in Dryland. I think it's good to make them athletes. But my my expectations are a lot lower, right? Um, you know, I, I call it like I'm just here to give them rhythm and gravity, you know, just yeah. to experience gravity, their body weight, because swimming is non-weight bearing, but also just to challenge them rhythmically in different ways and like like the athletic jumps, they're not very good at, right? Like a sidestep into a vertical or mm. whatever it may be. Um But they're really good kind of just like standing and jumping because that's what they do off the blocks and off the wall. Um, And then baseball, um, we sprint a lot more. I have them do a lot of like non sagittal plane sprint work. So a lot of our like crossover, defense, lateral shuffling, stuff like that. We're going to do that with swimming, obviously. Um, The the rotation work is a lot more med ball based versus swimming. I kind of abandon med balls. They don't get as into it as my baseball players do. Uh, So we'll stick to more like Kaisers and cables and bands and stuff like that. Um, So I forgot, I totally hijacked your question if it was similarities or differences, but I kind of went everywhere on that one. Yeah,
1: no, no. I do think that's important as well. And that's something I want to get into is the rotational work that you do. And I'm actually seeing that there's an increase on the demand of rotational work for different types of sports. What are some of the key elements that you look for? in terms of building these rotational type programs Mm -hmm.
0: for sure. So I think it's, it's just like any other exercise, right? You have your push, your pull, your squat, hinge, et cetera, et cetera. And then within each of those you have, um, you know, your posterior chain or, um, your unilateral, you have whatever it may be, uh, bilateral, you know, squat. So we have our rotation work just in general, right? And then what kind of subcategories within that is there? Mm. So you have just your resisted core work. So that would be like a cable chop, a cable lift, an anti-rotation press, just getting a little bit more load on the core. And then you have your med ball work, right? So for rotation, or there's three main categories I have for my med ball work. So we have our overhead med balls. So those exercises where you're kind of lying on your back, it's Mm -hmm. not really rotation, but I view that. I view my med ball working all together kind of lying on your back overhead working the lats explosively. And then for rotation, I have my scoop throws. So that's like the two hands underhand by your waist and then the single arm shot put. So that's one hand kind of up by your, your shoulder, kind of pushing it. Um, that would be a little bit more like throwing and the other one would be a little bit more like hitting. Um, and then within that you have progressions, regressions, variations, just like you have any other exercise to make it harder, right? You have a, yep. a perpendic- uh, parallel stance, both toes facing the wall. A perpendicular, where um, you're kind of turned 90 degrees, looking at the wall. You have a rocker, kind of working at some rhythm. You have a step back. You have a step behind. You have a shuffle behind. You have a partner toss, right? You have all of these layers to make it harder over time. Mm-hmm. Um, that just make the most sense at at certain points in the year. So having your categories and understanding what categories you believe go into rotation work. Um, those are kind of my big, I guess that was four. Um, and then all of the other principles apply of at the beginning, get a little bit more volume, work on the rhythm and more kind of challenging movements. The middle is like a challenging variation, but they can still go kind of fast. And then phase three is going to be the a little bit more similar to kind of sport or throwing or hitting. And that's going to be like the fastest speeds that we see and then rinse, repeat. So um, concepts that we all know and understand, just applying it in different like categories.
1: Yeah. Can we back up into the sort of medicine ball through setup type style that you were talking about? Why is that important in terms of rotational work?
0: Yeah. so, So if we think about sports, because it all has to come back to that, right? Baseball, we'll just go with that. You know, a bat, most guys are going to swing 33 30s. So a 33 inch bat, a 30 ounce bat. And even the strongest guys are going to swing 34 31s. So that's not even two pounds because we're uh, not on the metric system over here. You know, 32 <laughs> ounces is two pounds. So they're swinging something that's not even two pounds, right? And a baseball is five ounces. That's a little bit more than one quarter of a pound. So, how do we work on things similar to that, but aren't that right? So uh, a belief of mine, I don't know if it's a hot take or not, but I don't think you should be chucking a med ball over 12 pounds. You know, that's six times heavier than the heaviest bat that you'll ever swing. No one's swinging Mm -hmm. at 35, 32, you know? So, and then you have, you know, anything, two pounds of a med ball all the way up to 12 and everything in between. And, I've heard this argument before of, well, they swing so much in practice and da da da, and all this stuff. And my rebuttal is, well, this is something completely different than that. It's like, you know, three sets of three, it's nine super high quality, specific kind of variations challenging their ability to rotate. They're not worried about hitting a ball, they're just simply rotating. And it's progressive overload, just like any other muscle, yeah. right? Like we have to remember that, like, rotation is still muscles that are being used, right? So is nine nine total rotations going to really affect them versus the 150, 200, 500 swings they take a day or a week or whatever it may be. So I think it's it's specific. Um, I think that it can go wrong when it gets a little bit too heavy and it, it turns into mm. a shoulder dump as opposed to a rotation, right? Or when my baseball players, and not that this ever happens, when they get uh, t- a little bit too excited for the lift and then they forget kind of all the things that they've been working on kind of with the hitting coach. And that's not to say that I'm here to teach them how to hit or, or have the like hitting coach by my side, like redoing the hitting lesson. But like, it's supposed to transfer, right? And if there's things you're working on in your hitting, you can still work on those things in here. So I think to give them something a little bit different, a med ball throw to you know progressively overload their core with some resistance and loads making it heavy over time going from three sets of three to four to four by four and then resetting right mm-hmm. um, it's muscles just like anything else um and then i think i answered that question I yeah i kind of went all over the place again
1: now you're good don't worry um so you kind of touched on it but i kind of want to talk a little bit more and break it down is they are constantly rotating when they're practicing, and I think I've always strained away from like sport specific movements in the gym because you're never going to get sport specific movements. But the key thing that you just said was that you're not loading it in heavy loads; it's sort of low loads and controlled loads. Is that a fair breakdown of what what you just
0: said? Yeah. So it's it's like how specific is specific? You know, like, um, like for example, I'm, I'm a big resisted sprint guy. So if we say a sprint, a fast sprint is like nine meters a second. I guess I'll use the metric system. is nine meters a second, right? If we sprint at 50% velocity decrement, which is very heavy, that's probably the heaviest most athletes will sprint. That's four and a half meters a second. Right. And what's like an unresisted, um, like barbell squat jump one, four, one, five, one, six. So the fastest movement we'll ever do in the weight room is like nowhere near the heaviest sprint we'll do. Mm. So, you know, chucking, a a, that's the scientific word, Chuck, chucking a med ball, a 12 pound (laughs) med ball. is going to be way faster, relatively speaking than anything you'll probably do on a cable stack. Right. Mm. And it's not that one is right or wrong. Um, but if we're trying to, you know, surf the curve, depending on how people feel about that, well, you have your super light two, four, six pound med balls, you have the bat itself, but also like when they're taking so many swings and they're trying to not miss the ball mm. or even hit it well, right. And working on all the things with the hitting coach. Well, if I give them the the space, both mentally, mentally, physically, to just go all out for those nine, 10, 12, 15 total rotations. Well, that output is probably gonna be a little bit higher, right? So I'm training the core muscles, right? Because it's muscles. Mm -hmm. If we go back to reducing injury, right? I'm increasing the capacity of those muscles. And I'm also going to train both sides, right? One of my favorite things to do in the world is watch baseball guys do their non-dominant side because they (laughs) never do it, right? But if you're concerned, Of how many swings they take well then that kind of supports your argument that they should be Mm. doing med balls because they actually can do their other side right you're you're not going to spend one hour hitting if you're a righty and then once you're done spend an hour hitting lefty that's just like not a thing so i think it's a chance to not make them symmetrical but a chance to check off a box that they literally never check off anywhere else um so i think to to get a little bit higher outputs a chance to subconsciously like work on those things um as well as like is it a specific movement or is it just training their core in Mm. an athletic way? You know, I think it can kind of just go back to how you think about it.
1: Yeah. And I think that's a really good way of sort of putting it is like we're in an industry where we need to balance these athletes out because their sport is it may be like a bilateral movement that they do, but one side will always be stronger than the other side. And I think I always agree that if you do 50 on one side, you're need doing 50 on the other side. Like, and I think that rotational work makes a lot more sense when you balance it out as well.
0: Yeah, so not expecting symmetry, but you can't just abandon it just because.
1: Yeah, 100%. And like with the rotational work as well, I find that there's no really... Any sort of lifting type movements that are rotational. So creating that availability with medicine balls or kettlebells, like how how have you found sort of creating these exercises to fill that bucket?
0: Yeah. So if, if we just think about like simple to complex, slow to fast, integrating the body, kind of making it more complex over time. Um it's really just like things that we do anyways you know again where it's like whether it's you know sports science and the scientific method i think most of the listeners are going to be like 90 percent of the way there they probably just haven't put it to pen and paper right so i I listed some of the variations of parallel stance, perpendicular you can go tall kneeling you can go half kneeling laterally standing up and throwing you can do a a rhythm kind of rocker throw a step back a step behind a shuffle behind, a partner kind of throw, uh, catch into a throw um, and stuff like that. So like think about all the different ways that you could do a sprint. You have a regular Mm -hmm. sprint on a knee forwards, on a knee sideways, on your stomach, on your back. resisted, right? You could write all those down, rank them from like simplest and slowest to complex and fastest. And then you just have all your med ball variations, right? And not that Mm -hmm. I know them all. I've just done this long enough to where I have a decent amount that I can do you know, multiple phases of, of med ball throws. Um, but I think just challenging guys in in different ways is engaging. And, and again, it's like, if you think 15 super high quality, you know, rotations is is going to, um, kind of do more harm than good. I would say, well, let's look at like the three hours of hitting and do on their own, just on one side, you know, and I'm not here to like change practice or do whatever i'm just trying to argue that we should be doing uh rotation work so again it's all these concepts that we all know and do and we can agree on i've just like applied it to med ball work
1: yeah no that's i i'm fascinated with this rotational work that's coming out just now that i'm finding anyways and i think it's important for the core and then the availability to perform that movement efficiently and effectively through other sport as well um You've mentioned about the sprinting and how much sprinting you do. Can you give us a breakdown on how much and what exactly you do?
0: Yeah, so, um, keeping everything kind of relative, you know, Charlie Francis's ninety-five percent is a good kind of place to start. So you have his three zones. So ninety-five plus. So think if your best is twenty. Uh, I'll use i uh, I'll use meters a second again. So like 10 meters a second, right? Well, 95 is 9.5. So mm-hmm. can you hit that speed or faster as a high quality rep that's going to get you faster over time? You need a lot of rest, et cetera, et cetera, right? You have uh, your second zone, which is going to be 95 to 75. That's going to be the medium intensity. That's what most of practice is. That's like fast enough to get you tired, um, but not fast enough to like really get you faster. Mm-hmm. So again, like that, That zone has value in just being able to build a base, make it through practice and um, kind of build the capacity, right? But again, like when it comes to performance, kind of like what we do doesn't make the most sense. And then you have like 75% and below, that's going to be your kind of um, not necessarily your more aerobic stuff, your active recovery type things. So for me, I'm trying to stay in 95 plus or 75 and below because they spend, you know, in the NCAA, I get, uh, the athletes get 20 hours a week Mm -hmm. and I get them for three to five. I'm trying to stay either 95 plus or 75 below because the rest of those 15 hours is that like 75 to 95. Um, So I think giving them that space intentionally where that's where the art of coaching comes in of I need them to rest so it's actually really fast but I have to keep them engaged and the Mm. coaches happy like that we're not just standing around right because you leave a bunch of college boys just standing around like they're gonna get into trouble right so that's where the art of coaching is of like how do you pair them up how do you do drills that like incorporates a lot of walking back or whatever it may be um so how to turn speed training into not conditioning Mm um but to keep stuff fast um so we have our our main types of speed so you have your acceleration and your top speed for linear speed and then you have your kind of side to side frontal plane shuffling stuff like that you have your multi-directional thing, like hip flip plane defense kind of working behind you um and then basically how do we check check off all those boxes throughout the course of a week
1: yeah how so for the listeners that might not understand the our system that athletes go through can you just break it down a little bit
0: yeah so the the ncaa that runs all of our lives no i'm just kidding there's rules <laughs> because they are student athletes right and if the if sport coaches and myself included as a strength coach like if we could use them more hours of the day help get them better and stuff like we probably would uh, but they're kind of here for school you know student athletes especially at a smart school like northwestern so basically it's just like a way to regulate kind of how much they're doing uh, probably for the sake of everyone involved, to be honest. Mm-hmm. So if you're in your competitive season, you get 20 hours a week, maximum four hours a day to break that up however you want. Um, for most teams, it's going to be two or three hours of lifting, and then the rest is going to be practice. Uh, but I was fortunate enough that I got 30 minutes a day, three or four times a week to warm them up mm-hmm. and do speed work before practice. Um, so I got more like yeah. five, six hours. Um and coaches can break that up however they want. Big team practices, you know, small groups to work on a little bit more specific skills. And then when you're in your non-competitive, so like baseball is a spring sport. We had our big chunk of the fall that was 20 hours, but then we had a few weeks that were just eight hours. Um, so that'd be more like an off season. So you mm-hmm. get four hours of training and four hours of practice. Um, so just to give some some kind of structure to the training week to help keep... Uh, us professionals in performance and also sport from going crazy. So
1: Yeah. What's the load management systems that you go through and how is it applied to them as student athletes?
0: So load management and load monitoring and individualization and some of these topics that we've referenced, a lot of it makes sense in theory, right? But if we think about load monitoring, right? You see how their load is is it high, low? Um and how are they feeling, and how much have we been doing versus how they're feeling et cetera et cetera you're trying to put all these things together to schedule and plan their training day, their week better mm-hmm. so it's also that fine line of like shocker they do a lot of sport and they train a lot and their loads are going to be high. but how can we be a little bit more intentional about it so i I forgot what podcast I heard this on it was a really good quote um. <laughs> I don't do as much load monitoring here uh, because swimming is pretty objective in programming it. You know, you have your sets, you have how many yards you're doing, you have what intervals it's on and stuff like that. And then baseball being kind of like a field sport where you have to do everything all the time. You have to be able to sprint really fast. You have to be able to make it through, you know, a three hour game or a four hour practice. You have to be able to lift really heavy where there's not as much kind of manipulation kind of just doing everything, a little bit of everything all, all the time. Um, so, um, with the load monitoring, sport coaches and people not in it. And sometimes it does turn into like taking stuff away. Oh, we've mm. been doing too much. And of course, like that's probably gonna be most people's issues and that's not right or wrong. Just, we want to do a lot. We want to train hard, but viewing it more as I'm not the takeaway coach. I'm the rearranged coach. Right. So where, oh, you know, like I'm, I'm a believer in the high, low model. So mm. when it's your day to go hard, go hard. And it's your day to go not necessarily easy, but light, go light. So for example, we're gonna do our our speed conditioning, big practice, and lift on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then Tuesday and Thursday is gonna be a little bit longer of a warm up, a little bit more kind of one on one stuff in practice. So it has that ebb and flow of like you train hard, but then that Tuesday and Thursday you get to kind of bounce back. Mm. Versus if every day is like hard. Well, when are you supposed to feel better? So I think kind of going back to, you know, a a fist bump is just as good as readiness is, as like a a fancy force plate. Well, you know, like the coaches just see the athletes, how they move, how they're responding, just like the vibe and the feel and the flow. And like, we all know when our athletes are buzzing and feeling really good. And we Mm -hmm. all know when like a deload week probably should be this week instead of next week, right? So um. I'd say for most people, it's probably going to be the anecdata that's going to guide that. Yeah. Um, but I think in a field sport where volumes are higher in general, like a soccer, like a lacrosse, I think a sport where catapult makes sense. Um, a little bit more kind of heart rate focus also. Mm-hmm. Um, I think load monitoring is probably going to apply to those better. Like I said, we're coaches in swimming; they plan it out. You know, however many weeks. Uh, I don't think probably months, but like. Oh, this week is going to be, you know, this kind of model as well. And we arranged our baseball schedule to kind of have um, some kind of load monitoring already built in.
1: Yeah. So you kind of use a weekly underlying type model when you're going through your programming.
0: Yeah, at least that's what makes the most sense to me. Um, And an example from TCU when I was a graduate assistant doing load monitoring for a team, monotony was a big number if you're familiar with that and, and how it's calculated. So basically it's the average load of the week Mm. average daily load divided by the standard deviation of those seven days so basically if there's a lot of high low days and it's a good um and the average isn't too crazy and if there's a lot of standard deviation so a lot of variation the denominator is big well then the number is going to be lower right we want Mm. low monotony versus if every day is kind of hard high well it's a high average and there's not a lot of variation, monotony is going to be very, very high. So it's just a way to quantify kind of that, that undulation. And I was talking to the coach about it. Um, Cause that was the biggest light bulb that we kind of worked on all together. Mm. Um, and, and she had this like comment that like, even for her, it makes her feel better because she knows it's, it's going to be a quick day in and out, whatever it may be. Or she knows that it's going to be a quick practice. Um, Cause low doesn't necessarily mean easy. Mm -hmm. a quick practice with more time for film. And she knows, oh, it's a big practice, long haul. I got to, you know, like even mentally as a coach, she got that undulation and she felt those benefits. Um, So if it's quantifying it directly, or if it's just using your kind of data and intuition, but also like, if you set up a good training week, you should be like 90% of the way there. You know, I just go back to like 90% number. Um, And that's the end of my rant on that. (laughs)
1: <laughs> nah, you're not ranting. See, this see the, the thing that a lot of people think that they're just rambling or ranting over like a th- specific thing that they're talking about but i think it's good to let you explain exactly how like exactly your process and thought behind that specific thing because i think that gives the biggest it like, gets the biggest difference in explaining and making it sense makes sense mm. so i um, appreciate that no it's all good it's all good um with your sprint how do you you introduce load and what are some of the ways that you sort of increase that load
0: yeah so these are all you know philosophies and models that i just steal from really smart old people (laughs) um but just like the high low model right can i set them up for success kind of at the most fundamental level of how they're feeling Um, but next i'm a believer in a short to long approach so that's a little bit more of a track and field concept but there's two main kind of concepts. There's short to long and long to short. So long to short is you start out with like longer runs, think like a hundred yards, like a whole football field. And that's not gonna be very fast, obviously on week one. And then the next week would be like 80 and then 60 and then 40 and the speeds would kind of go up over time. So you kind of build that base in your legs kind of with the longer runs, kind of more volume Mm -hmm. and you add in the speed kind of as you go. Versus on the flip side, You could probably guess short to long. You start 10 yards all out, and then you kind of get that longer over time as you kind of build that base with more reps, shorter stuff, et cetera, et cetera. So the reason why that makes sense to me is because you get the intensity at 100% all Mm. the time. So again, if we go back to Charlie Francis again, he's kind of smart. He's good at making people fast. You know, if we're looking for that 95%, if I'm doing a long to short, it could take me, however many weeks to get up to a hundred percent, right? Versus a short to long, I'm at a hundred percent on day one. Um, and maybe it doesn't have to be, you know, a hundred percent. If you don't feel comfortable doing that day one, but they could hit a 10 year sprint at 90. You could coach it at mm-hmm. 90. Right. Um, so cause intensity is going to drive adaptation and volume is going to build capacity. So I'm trying to get adaptations and the, the capacity will come over time, or at least that's kind of my belief. Yeah. So a short to long approach, you know, 10 yards, 100% effort, however many reps you feel comfortable and kind of working from there as opposed to the other way around makes more sense to me.
1: Yeah. And then how do you introduce load onto that as in like the heaviness of the sprints?
0: So, so then it goes into kind of programming, exercise selection, simple to complex, short to long, right? How there's all these concepts mm-hmm. that apply to like everything we've talked to today so far. Um So it's going to be pretty simple, you know, upright, sprinting, probably just them or multiple guys at a time, but not in like a very competitive kind of context, right? Then you're going to to make it a little bit more complex with the drill, the variation, the starting position, the distance, timing lasers, um, having a few buddies race them and like saying, hey, this is a race, don't lose, you know, so just how you would progress a med ball throw, just how you would progress whatever it may be simple to complex, relatively slow to fast, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, what they achieve at 10 yards, although it's 100% effort, isn't that close to like, um, it's it's 95% of their 10-yard speed, right? But it's not that high, relatively speaking, of their overall speed.
1: Yeah. And with sort of both sports that you're sort of on, it's a lot of shoulder dominant and you kind of need to protect and look after those what are some of the things that you add into that program to make sure that they're as healthy as possible
0: sweet yeah so um again like it's it's a weird and and this is a different rabbit hole of like the imposter syndrome of like I'm just here reciting everything I've learned for the last you know when I started coaching as an intern back in 2016 um but Eric Cressy we all know who he is like this is just my interpretation of there was no singular podcast or article or whatever it may be. It's honestly just consuming his stuff for years. Just my interpretation of it. So you have your categories, right? You have your external rotation. You have your protraction and upward rotation. You have your kind of posterior tilt, kind of low trap, kind of Y patterns. And then you also have like your T-spine mobility, mm-hmm. thoracic spine inflection, extension, and and rotation as well. Um, and then you can progress those from a simple hold into an end range of motion hold into a weighted hold into, um, a weighted, uh, movement into a banded movement into a partner kind of, um, perturbation or tap into a maxi centric. So there's all of these things that make sense in, you know, squatting med ball throws, mm. whatever, Uh, simple to complex, right? Short to long in duration or reps or whatever it may be. And it's just like, what are your categories and what do you believe in? So those are the the main movements that are required in um, baseball that I also do all of this with my swimmers, right? You have layback, so that's max external rotation. Mm -hmm. You have kind of ball release that's gonna be your protraction and upper rotation. You have your Y pattern that's gonna help with kind of layback as well. The two hardest parts of throwing is external rotation or are lay back and then also ball mm-hmm. release. Um, but then it's also a total body movement. So I, I actually also toss in my hip care in my like shoulder care yeah. kind of categories. Um, so ER, upward rotation, kind of your Y variations, T spine, and hips. It was like a good kind of five categories.
1: Yeah. Do you sort of apply the triphasic, um, method into sort of taking care of those, uh, body parts?
0: Yeah. So I, I'm more of like an eccentric, Sorry, isometric mm. isometric first, build that base, right? And then once we have that capacity, then can you do that in a little bit more with with movement as well? So I would do like a a hold first and then I would do like an eccentric kind of second. Yeah. Um but that's a nice, nice kind of formula to, to work into it.
1: Um I've mentioned this and honestly for people listening to this episode will be second me saying this, but um there's this coach from Scotland that he does a lot of, when he was with SIU, he did uh, ISOs, coming out of ISOs and then ballistics to sort of prevent, sort so, so rugby is a very extensive sport, like you're wrapping around person, but there's that moment where you're sort of extended this way, so there's a lot of chance of you getting knocked through. So for him, he does this thing where he does ISOs and then he does something similar to what you're saying. It's just like that slow movement and eccentric type work. But then he adds in a ballistic type movement to essentially prepare for that quick sharp movement, but still being strong enough to withstand any impact that happens to it. Um, And I think that's very fascinating to sort of watch because like you've got guys just like, hitting um, a Swiss ball or something very high paced just to build up that resistance in it. Um, yeah. I think those it,
0: exercises are, are great.
1: Yeah. Is there anything else that you sort of add into sort of look after your athlete's joints and muscles?
0: Um, I think just like going back to there's nothing we have to do today. Mm. Right. So whether it's a limitation, they just have kind of in general, you know, like with my swimmers, we snatch on Mondays, resisted jump on Wednesdays and clean on Fridays. I have a few athletes that clean on Monday to Friday because snatches don't like agree with their shoulders. Am I going to make them snatch? Obviously not. It's a bilateral explosive movement that they can get better at over time with a bunch of variations. Right. Um, For those who um, program Olympic lifts great you're into it like how can i complain you know or it's just like oh i just came from pitching or as a huge practice my shoulder isn't um isn't feeling too good sweet let's like figure out what we can do um so i think just like like um (laughs) it's interesting the as i'm i'm coming on four months now or so working with these athletes they've like learned some of my phrases and stuff and my phrase uh a phrase of mine is like, "Don't make it worse."
1: Mm.
0: Like, we don't have to do anything today. Let's train. Let's get you with the team. Let's get you feeling really good. There's nothing we have to do. I get more mad at you if you don't tell me, and then it gets worse, and then etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think just like giving them that space to like talk to me, mm. um, so they like want to because I want to help them, obviously. So it's like we don't have to do anything, and don't make it worse.
1: Yeah. How do you create that buy-in with your athletes?
0: Uh I think it is a process. You know like admittedly at my old job in the private side with a lot of turnover and a lot of new clients mm-hmm. I hate that like first I don't know a few sessions few weeks where it's a lot of small talk the same questions it's new to them but it's not to me. Um and then there's those clients that they come in and the conversation just picks up right where it left off. You know we all know that feeling. Um but you can't rush into that. So mm-hmm. I think just like knowing that like yeah on day 1 they're not going to like be hundred percent bought in like, like go all out on everything you have them do. But then also it's like set that expectation up front of like, I'm here for you. I'm not here to like, like work against you and like tattle on you and whatever it may be. But it's like, you're here to, you know, swim really fast, throw yeah. baseballs really hard. And I'm here to help you do that. So help me help you. You know, like this is a collaborative process. This isn't me just telling you what to do and, and stuff like that. So I think, as weird as it sounds, you can just explicitly say like, I'm here for you, mm-hmm. you have your goals, I want to make it happen for you, right? And then here's your end of the bargain as well. You gotta tell me these things, you, get, you gotta give me your best, right? We gotta turn our C into B and A into B days, right? So here's the, this kind of give and a take, and here's my expectations. Um, and I think that so much of coaching can get cleared up by just like getting those expectations set on the first day. Yeah. So um this will be my last kind of rant and then I'll 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 have to bounce. But you know, weight room expectations like you have to have some, but I think simpler is better. And I think Mm -hmm. I had three rules. The first was like respectful and responsible. If you have to question if it's one of those two things, you probably shouldn't. The second was um just give your best, right? Like turn your C into B or yeah, your C into B and A and B into A. Just give me your best that day. Um and then I forgot the third one but it was three super simple things that I could reference anytime I wanted. (laughs) Besides Mm. right now, this is like four months ago. (laughs) Um, not that like I say it every single day. Right. Mm. But I can draw back to that. Hey, was that respectful? Hey, was that responsible? Um, Hey, is this your best? I know you're not feeling good, but like still, is that your best today? So I think, um, having those expectations of like, Hey, why didn't you tell me like, like, did you make it worse today? Oh, you did. Mm. Okay. Like we, we talked about that. Right. Um, so again, not in like a negative way, but you have to be on the same page. So I think not assuming that athletes know those things and kind of putting it out there into the universe that you can come back to later is super, super valuable.
1: Yeah. No, that's sick. Um, I know you're you're sort of pushed for time today, but thank you so much for coming on and sort of just if you want to plug anything or um sort of talk about anything that you've got coming up.
0: Sweet. Uh, Thank you very much for for the opportunity and for reaching out, you know, being a a podcast host myself, which I'll I'll plug in a sec. I definitely appreciate kind of what it takes to put on a podcast, but also I I appreciate being on the other side as well. Um, So uh, if the listener wants to wake up really quick, my, uh, my IG is coach big toe, just how it sounds. B I G T O E. My Twitter is the same way. Um, I have links to my YouTube and my podcast in there as well. My YouTube is just my name, Matt Tometz, and my podcast is The Talking Shop Podcast. So just the mm-hmm. phrase of like, oh, we're just talking shop. Going back, I'd probably change it. I made this like four or five years ago. Uh, yeah. But all the links are on my social media. I'm on social media way too much. So that's just the easiest way to get a hold of me.
1: Yeah, I'll plug everything in the description
0: as well. Sweet. Nah, thank you so much for coming on. All right, talk soon. Peace. <laughs>